Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 150, A Conversation with Lisa Orr. I am really excited to bring you this episode. Lisa is a proud wife and mother of two boys, ages eight and six, and she lives just north of Boston, Massachusetts. She is a four-year triple negative breast cancer survivor and the director of marketing for Elephants and Tea in the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation. If you are not familiar with Elephants and Tea, it is a magazine written for and by adolescent and young adult cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers telling their stories. It is an incredible publication and resource. On today's episode, Lisa talks about her diagnosis, the moment where she was when she got the call and how she reacted and what she does every year on that day. We talk about parenting and relationships during diagnosis, treatment, survivorship. We talk about the importance of communication, caregiver help and support, and so much more. This is a really wonderful conversation, and I am so honored to welcome Lisa to the Interlude podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Lisa, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We've known each other for a while through social media, but tell us a little bit about who you are, your story, what you do. Yeah. So my name is Lisa Orr. I live in Massachusetts and I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer at age 31. Um, And that was with no family history, nothing whatsoever. Um, No knowledge that it could happen that young. I was really kind of in the dark. And I say I was very naive about it because we were very lucky. We didn't have any family members that had really had any experience with cancer on either side, my side or my husband's side of the family. Um, So I can kind of go into my, my whole story about how I was diagnosed, but I am now working in the adolescent young adult nonprofit cancer space, kind of being on this side of my experience with cancer. Um, And I know we'll talk about that more later, but it's just wild. What a, what a ride cancer brings you on and, and, um, lots of questioning of identity and everything, but I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. So I, I want to hear all about that. And I'm really curious, you know, I was, when people kind of come full circle and start working in that space, you know, is it, and I can ask it now, is it triggering, um, or is it empowering or is it a combination of both? Both, definitely both. Um, I have found it to be more empowering, more um, than than triggering in my personal experience. However, there definitely have been situations or weeks where there were multiple people I spoke with or things I read um, that kind of hit me and, and and sent me into that dark kind of space again and. I don't know. I think a lot of it is having to do with as um, triple negative breast cancer is is what I was diagnosed with. Um, I'm nearing my five year mark of diagnosis, which is huge for for that type specifically of breast cancer. And I I have found my anxiety to kind of be heightening again leading up to that. Um, instead of <laughs> cooling down, which I <laughs> hoping would happen. Um, so I'm not sure if that's something you're, you're used to seeing on your end, but, um, yeah, so I I would say it definitely varies. Uh, but I can share a little bit more about the organization, um, and then go back and talk about my diagnosis, if that would be 
helpful. Yeah, why don't we, since we've talked, brought it up, so tell tell me about Elephants and Tea. Yeah, so I'm the director of marketing at Elephants and Tea. We are a nonprofit media brand of the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation. We have the only magazine that is completely free and it's written for and by the AYA or adolescent and young adult cancer community. So the entire thing is first person stories, um, any type of cancer, and uh, it's just so powerful. It's a quarterly magazine, completely free, like I said, to subscribe to, and it's available print or digitally. So depending on what people are interested in. Um, but I actually found Elephants in Tea when I was nearing my the end of my active treatment. So again, interesting to be on that side of it. And to um, my sister was actually the one that found the resource for me. I was kind of, um, when I was nearing the end of my treatment, I was really having more of a mental health kind of, um, that's when the, the yeah. issues mm-hmm. were really becoming more clear to me. I think I was just so focused, head down, focused on, on treatment. Um, that when she sent it to me at first, I have to admit, I was like, uh, like I'm not, I'm not ready to read other people's experiences because I'm just kind of wrapping my brain around my own. Um, but then I did. And there was something so powerful in reading words of other people. And, and again, I was hesitant, like, oh, but they're not breast cancer patients or survivors. It's going to be different. Honestly, the emotions, the experiences, the um, trials that we go through are really so similar as a young adult facing cancer that I found such comfort in reading stories, knowing that I wasn't alone in what I was going through. So we're much more than a magazine, but storytelling is kind of the heart and soul of what we do. And our mission is to make people in the AYA community, whether that be patients, survivors, caregivers, co-survivors, feel less alone in what they're going through. Um, So those magazines have themes. And in addition to that, our website, we post three new articles a week. So our submissions are coming in all the time. We've, We've gotten more submissions in the first half of 2023 than in all of 2022 as a whole. So half of me is like the cancer side of me, the cancer survivor side of me is like, ah, why are there so many people going through this? But the nonprofit side of me is like, I'm, I'm glad people are feeling the relief in sharing their story and knowing that hey, it's probably not only helping them kind of release some of their emotions about what they're going through, but it's helping so many people who read their stories and feel less alone. Well, and um, I, I think that speaks to a couple of things, but I think we're hopefully destigmatizing yeah. cancer. And for years, and even still, but for years, there's such a stigma about talking about mental health and all the struggles and you were kind of, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have been, have been told you should be lucky you're alive, which just makes me cringe. But mm-hmm. so I, I think it's really a testament to the work that you guys are doing that people do feel comfortable opening up. Yeah, I think a big part of that, honestly, is the fact that we we pride ourselves on not shying away from like any topic whatsoever. And In the cancer community, oddly enough, there are some like taboo topics or like topics that people don't talk about enough. Like, especially looking back, um, it's like things like sexual health and fertility and cancer and the mental health pieces like loneliness, isolation, um, some things that just don't get brought up or discussed enough, in my opinion. So I think that The fact that people in the community are reading those words and being like, wow, yeah, I felt that I've just never voiced it before, or I've never heard somebody talk about their struggles before, or I had the same experience with my oncologist when discussing fertility or not discussing it. And um, yeah, I just think that those, those topics that we're hopefully working on bringing to light more will continue to help people know that that there are others that are facing what they're facing. 
and hopefully help other people be able to advocate for themselves um, and be able to go to their medical team and say, I read about this or, you know, can we talk about this? Because I think the days of, you know, it is a partnership and, and the days of, you know, well, my doctor didn't mention it, so this must not be relevant for me is that those days are gone. And I think we want, I want patients to be partners in their care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, advocating for yourself, I think, especially as a young adult going through cancer is something you learn day one, or hopefully you, you know, that that has to be part of your care because nobody else is really going to do it for you. You know, your body. Um, and I think that that happens a lot, especially at a young age, because cancer is less common at our young age. So these symptoms that we feel before we're diagnosed could easily be chalked up to a handful of other things that, that, um, young adults go through. So I, I agree with you about the advocating. I mean, I think that, that you kind of learn that as you go, that you, you sort of have to advocate for yourself in order to um, get the care that you, that you need. And I think the part that often gets missed and, you know, we hear, I think social media, obviously, you know, I think is wonderful, but it is a little bit of a echo chamber. And I think when you start posting about, you know, adolescent, young adult cancer, you're going to see more of it. Right. And so it, it, it almost seems like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. And yes, the numbers are increasing, but the average age of breast cancer still remains 62 and only about 9% of people are getting diagnosed younger than 45. And so I say this because a lot of, and I work with a lot of young adult patients, but a lot of doctors are, do not treat young adults, you know, especially in places where you're not specialized and you're treating all the cancers and you may see one or two people with breast cancer in a year in their forties or thirties. And so, and for gynecologists who sometimes, you know, people say my, my mass was missed or misdiagnosed. I think part of it is that they're not seeing it day in and day out. And so I think this is where that advocacy becomes really important. Yeah, no, I could not agree more. I think that I mean, those statistics are shocking, to be honest, because yeah. um, mm-hmm. again, when you're in it day to day, seems um, like it's everywhere. Yeah. And- I had a three-year-old and a one and a half-year-old and that one and a half-year-old, I breastfed up until he was about 14 months. Um, so this is like five, six months after I had stopped breastfeeding, I was at a very, what felt like a very healthy part of my life. I was finally feeling I like I was, you know, handling this whole mom of two mm-hmm. little boys thing. And I was exercising and, and trying to fit in time for myself, which is very hard to do in general, but especially as a mom with little kids. And I was on our treadmill that we had in the basement. Um, and I was finishing up my run and I had like a pulling sensation in my armpit area. Um, but it wasn't like, it didn't really feel muscular. It was just a weird sensation that kind of caused me to move my hand around my left breast. Um, and that's, I felt it immediately. It was about like an inch or two above, um, my nipple area. And it was like this lump that was hard as a rock. And I immediately, like my gut sank. I've always been a little bit health anxious, Um, again, for no given reason, I just, I've always been a little bit of an anxious person, but particularly around health. But when I felt this, my gut sank because first of all, I was like, how have I not felt this before? That's how obvious it was. And second of all, I immediately thought something terrible was wrong. And clearly my loved ones, my husband, um, I, told him immediately. And he's like, totally just the chill calm. Oh my goodness. It's nothing. It's going to be fine. Both my parents are in the medical field. So I call them. Um, and they also were like reassuring me, but with their medical background was kind of like, you know, maybe we should just get it checked (laughs) out. Um, and, but again, this isn't, this wasn't like out of the ordinary for me to be worried about something in regards to somebody's health. So I think everybody kind of was like taking that with a grain of salt, if you will. Um, 
So because my, my dad was, um, a doctor, he was actually able to get me into an appointment fairly quickly for a mammogram, um, and ultrasound. So a week later is when I went in, um, had the mammogram and ultrasound. They did call me back in for extra pictures. And then during the ultrasound, the radiologist did come in and sit on the bed and said, I don't love how this looks. I would like to get it biopsied. And the room went black and I, I started panicking and, um, I was by myself actually, because I, nobody thought it was a big, it was going to be a big deal. Um, and so I was able to, I mean, I was sobbing and she was like, you know what? I actually have a spot later today. If you want to hang on, I can biopsy you today. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, my dad ended up coming to meet me. My husband was working nights at the time. So he was sleeping. My mom was with my kids. So she woke my husband up. It was kind of, it became this whole kerfuffle. Um, and I had the biopsy done, um, tried to go home and rest and relax and got the call the next day that it was triple negative breast cancer. I will never forget where I was the exact minute that I was called 2.01 PM um, on January 3rd, 2019. I immediately fell to the floor of my kitchen and did not move from that spot for hours. Um, I have a vivid memory of my dog coming and laying on my lap. They always seem to know when something's going on, but she just came and she's always looking for attention to be like belly rubbed or something. But it was so clear that she was just like laying next to me to be there. Um, gosh, my boys, I'm pretty sure my younger son was napping when we got the phone call and my, um, older son, we ended up just putting the TV on for him, but he didn't know really what was going on. Three is just so young. My husband's the one who made the phone call. He called my mom first, um, and told her to come to the house. He didn't tell her over the phone. Um, but he made all those phone calls goodness bless him. I mean, I can't imagine. Um, but my mom ended up coming and he told her and she, um, I didn't see it, but just hearing him tell this story about how she collapsed into his arms when he said it. Um, and then my dad, he called my dad, he came from work. Um, my sister was like super pregnant <laughs> with her second um, so we were really worried about telling her, but I have a very close family. So like, there was no getting, like everybody needed to know. And we're Italian. Like we, everybody needed to kind of gather together in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what felt right. Um, so before I knew it, there, we all were sitting on my kitchen floor all together, crying, asking questions, wondering. Um, and from the, I mean, I don't remember. Tra trauma is a funny thing because I remember some details so, so clearly, but then some I cannot for the life of me remember. And for some reason that bothers me. Like I, I cannot remember what I was wearing. I cannot remember certain things like that. I remember that I think someone went and picked up a pizza for some people to eat. I don't think I ate. Um, but from there, it seemed to move so quickly. I went in a few days later um, ended up going into Dana-Farber for a second opinion, loved the doctor I met there. Um, and that's where I started receiving my treatment. So for triple negative, I had my chemotherapy first. Um, so that started in January, like three, uh, I started about three weeks after diagnosis. So it was fairly quick, which I'm, I feel lucky about. Um, six months of chemotherapy that had its own bumps, um, in the road because I started off with AC, um, and then I was supposed to have four infusions of Taxol. But after the first one, I didn't have the typical allergic reaction that some people have. Um, I, about a week into, so I received the infusion and about a week later I spiked a fever and I, um, got pneumonitis of the lung. I, 
couldn't even sit up straight without completely losing my breath. It was actually very, very scary. Um, so I ended up in the hospital. They ended up chalking it up to the taxol because there was nothing. I didn't have an infection. I didn't have anything wrong with me. They didn't know what it was. Um, and at that point, they had to switch my care plan, essentially. Um, and my whole timeline got thrown off. So that was a very, very difficult time. Like in my head, I was like, I have three infusions left. And then they ended up putting me on aribulin. Um, Mm -hmm. and I had to do eight infusions of aribulin. So to go from like three left to eight was a whole thing. Um, but luckily aribulin, I handled it well. Um, and then in July was when I had my surgery And I did have a pathological complete response to the chemo, which was, I'll never forget that moment too, in in a wonderful way, um, getting that phone call. And then 36 rounds of radiation. Um, I had, they think I had an internal mammary node, um, but it was never biopsy because of the location. Um, So radiation was kind of protocol for that. And yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm nearing my five-year diagnosis date this January. So I'm about six, a little under six months away. Not that I'm counting, but it's been, it's been really difficult, really hard, but also, um, dare I say wonderful and, um, I I feel like I'm a completely different person. Um, I think I alluded to this before, but yeah, I had a huge identity crisis. I'm I'm a former elementary school teacher and I adored teaching. I loved it. Um, Something just didn't feel right about that after everything I had been through. So I knew that my career was going to go through a change. Um, and my undergraduate degree was actually in business and communications and marketing. So, um, it's not like this was completely out of left field, but, um, cancer will do weird, it'll do weird things to you and your mind and, and your priorities and, um, yeah. So every January 3rd, my family and I, we celebrate life day. That's what we call my cancerversary, um, is life day. And we try to all be together. Yeah, that's that's kind of my whole story. I'm, there's a lot more to it than that, obviously, but I'm trying to be short-winded here. No, I thank you for, for sharing that. You know, one of the things that I always kind of wonder about is, you know, for people with young kids or any other kind of, you know, responsibilities. And how did you do that while all of this was going on? You know, I think when you start treatment, at least you have a plan and you know, okay, this is what, you know, this is who's going to take care of my kids. This is what I have to do. But like all those unknowns, you know, waiting for getting that mammogram, waiting for the results, waiting to meet with the doctor, how do you separate? I got to give them their Cheerios and put them to bed with, oh my God, I may have cancer. Yeah. Incredibly difficult thing to do. And I, I always describe it to people as this feeling like the world the world keeps spinning. You're, you may feel like your world has just stopped, but like everyday life things still need to happen. The lawn needs to get cut. Like groceries need to be purchased. Bills need to be paid. Kids need their Cheerios. Like you're exactly right. Um, I think that because of their ages, so I go back and forth between feeling so um, glad that they were the ages they were and also looking back and being like, how on earth did I do that? Um, Glad because like I mentioned before, they were so young that they really didn't know what was happening. So we were able to kind of keep them. We talked about it. I mean, my older son, he was three. He noticed that my hair was gone. We kind of included him in all of that. We used the word cancer, but Um, I still, he still didn't fully grasp what was happening to mommy. Like mommy had to go get her medicine. So in that way, it almost kept our relationship, even though I was leaving a lot more than they were used to pretty normal in that respect, Mm -hmm. like getting them their snacks and playing with them when I felt up to it. I mean, there were 
many, many, many times where all I felt up to was laying on the couch and um, vivid memories of them just like literally driving their Hot Wheels cars up and down my body as I was laying there on the couch. Um, So I think just interacting with them in any way that I could depending on the day. Um, And like you said, once you're in the treatment, you kind of learn your own body and which days are going to be hard for you. So you can kind of plan ahead. At least I could, it was like, like clockwork, like days four, five, six, I I knew would be my absolute worst um, after an infusion. So in that way, it was kind of easy to plan too. like, Hey mom, we were just so lucky that we had family and friends and such an amazing support system, because I think that was just massively huge and everything. Um, But yeah, kind of being able to plan in that way. The flip side of it being kind of difficult that they were that young, again, is because they didn't understand and I had to keep doing, you know what I mean? So I did, I feel like it's, there's such a, you can look at it in either light and some days it felt like a blessing. And some days I was like, man, I wish you could just go shower yourself, (laughs) go read a book and let, let mommy just like close her eyes because the bone pain is so bad, you know? Um, but I, I think for me, a big thing was obviously support. A big thing for me was taking it one day at a time, sometimes even one moment at a time, one hour at a time, Um, my husband obviously had to continue to work so that we could, um, live where we were living. And so there were a lot of times where I did kind of have to like do it all. And, and even when I wasn't feeling up to it. So yeah, taking it one day at a time, leaning on support when we were able to, um, and gosh, my husband was just a rock star. He really, honestly, truly was. He stepped up so much in so many ways. Um, and again, I feel really lucky that I that I had that support going through it. I think one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is communication. And even the best of marriages, I think, can fall into you know, what you were doing before cancer and before chemo changes, you know, what were some of those conversations? Did you have any of those conversations about changing roles and all of that? Honestly, no real conversations that come to my mind, but something that he has always been really good at, and this was very hard for him to do when I was going through treatment was making sure he also took the time for himself So that was something that definitely came up and I have to applaud him because he would even go out of his way and like ask my mom to stay an extra half hour so he could go for a quick run um, because he knew that's what he needed for his mental health. So I feel like that was kind of the biggest thing in terms of like other roles. Um, He is just, we've, we've always just had such a beautiful relationship um, that I, I don't, I don't remember any clear conversations. I think it was like an unspoken, like he just was like, I'm, these are the things that I have to do because she's going through this, which, which it could be rare, but I just, I, I can't say enough amazing things about, about him in general, but especially during that time. And that's something, you know, the caregivers go through it just as much as, as the patients do. And, um, that's another thing we try to, we always try to include caregivers, caregivers, you know, in our programming. And, um, we have some in-person events happening and, and we make it very clear that the caregivers should also come. And we've had so many caregivers write in and we've, um, at Elephants and Tea and we've, published their, their articles, because I think that that perspective and that what they've been through is also so, so important. Yeah. Um, so that was a big thing for me. And, and especially after my treatment ended was kind of bringing that more to light as well. And, and talking to him more about it kind of after we had been through the hardest months, um, which was really eye opening because a lot of the times he, was staying so strong and, and have had such like a solid front 
for me, for the kids. Um, but it's obviously incredibly difficult to see your wife going through that. And I think I love what you said about taking time and making sure that that's, that, that that's really, really important because I think what we see a lot is people saying, well, I can't possibly take the time for myself. I have to be there and I have to, and, you know, we all need time for ourselves and you can't be there for others, you know, but I, I hear that a lot, the caregivers feel guilty mm-hmm. leaving, you know, or doing something for themselves because they want to be fully present at all times. Mm-hmm. And I think this right. happens, we see this with even appointments, you know, and it's hard because often the caregiver does have to work right, to support the family, um, especially if the person going through treatment is not working currently, uh, or taking time off, and they can't always be at the appointments and at work and doing all these things. And I think that's where it can be okay to ask other people in your circle to step up to Mm -hmm. that part. You know, it's not, it's, it can be a bigger circle. Definitely. Yeah. And that was a big thing too. And like I said, we were, we were lucky to have people that lived close by, but we you know, I know some people who go through this maybe don't have people close by, but they still have a circle, whether it be neighbors or, you know, their kids' families, you know, Um, I feel like when you're going through something as difficult as cancer, the people who love you will be there, however they can be there. Um, regardless of distance also. I mean, we had people support in so many ways. And I think even if you don't have that, um, or if you're not fortunate enough to have that, you know, nowadays, I mean, I see this all the time on Facebook groups, people say, you know, and they, they put it out there, I'm newly diagnosed and I need, I need some help. And the support that pours in, I can't tell you so many of my patients have met in radiation and now they're there for one another and they're, you know, where they've met in the waiting room. And so I think you can find that support if you're a little bit vulnerable and yeah. to be open, I think you can find that support in very unexpected places sometimes. Oh my gosh. I could not agree with you more. There are so many. And that's the thing too, is that even when I was diagnosed, um, I connected with, I know, you know, um, Kelly, uh, very well. Kelly comes up on this podcast pretty much like every time. (laughs) She is a celebrity. Um, She started TMBC Thrivers right around the time of my diet or a little bit before I was diagnosed, but I did find it fairly early on. Um, I think once she called me one of the OGs, which made me feel really... (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I... I could not agree with you more. There are these days, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know if there were the resources and support no. that there are now, but if you're going through it and you're, you don't have anybody or you feel like you don't have anybody, there are people out there, mm-hmm. um, who can and will support you. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things about all of these other nonprofit organizations too, is you realize that you really are truly not alone and that there are other people there to, to support. Yeah. And I think it's just being willing to ask for that support, which is really hard mm-hmm. for a lot of people to do. So you're coming up on five years and what are some of the kind of ups and downs and struggles that you're facing now? Cause I think we often talk about the acute, we talk about the chemo, we talk about that post chemo, you know, you're dealing with fatigue and neuropathy and mental health and all that, um, all of those issues. But what about anything that's lingering? Um, for me, I feel like I have lost my ability to be like naive about health or innocent Mm -hmm. like nothing feels like a small thing anymore even though it very well could be a small thing (laughs) for example a cold is not just a cold a weird bruise is not just a weird bruise a sore shoulder is not just a sore shoulder I for example I had an appointment today about something that I've been spiraling about for weeks so like For me personally, it's the physical things that come up that are normal. I'm a 35-year-old active woman. Like things are going to happen to my Mm -hmm. body that are not cancer. Um, 
but that to me has been the most difficult part. And I know that that ties directly to mental health and anxiety. And it's something that I um, have struggled with the whole time, but I, like you said, have had kind of ups and downs and moments where there isn't really anything ailing me. So I feel really great and strong. And um, it's a little bit more like in the back of my mind, it's never out of my mind, cancer, but um, it's a little more faded. And then there are still days where it's right at the forefront um, and the fear is back and the, um, the trauma, it just all feels still so fresh. So yeah, I would say that those little physical things that I immediately go to that kind of dark space still to this day. And again, I'm hoping that that gets better or maybe the trauma, maybe that is just going to be something I have to continue to work through um, in my life. Yeah, that's that's been the most difficult thing for me. Um, but there, like I said, have been such bright moments and bright days. And, and there was a time back right when I was diagnosed that I didn't think I would see my younger son go to elementary school. Um, and he just finished up his kindergarten year with um, being at the same school as, as his older brother. So that was, it's like hitting these milestones that I didn't think I was going to see. Um, have been pretty incredible for sure. And that five-year mark is, I don't know. It feels like a light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't think it's the end of the tunnel, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like I I think once you experience cancer, it's going to be something that you, you kind of bring with you. Um, I mean, I think in triple negative, the five-year mark is, like you said, a really big milestone, but it's also not like on year five and day one that all of a sudden everything melts away and it's like it never happened right carry all of that right so here's a question you know you have a, a physical issue and you're nervous and you're anxious about it and you go to the doctor and I think what has been you know in terms of your interaction with the healthcare profession because I think, you know, we always want to reassure the patient. We don't want to sound alarmist. Um, but sometimes I think too, if you say, oh, it's nothing to worry about, that also isn't sometimes the best. So what has been, what helps you and what helps you hear? How do you want to hear that from a doctor? Mm. Oh man, that's such a good question. So I will say that I have honestly had nothing but incredible experiences with all of my care team. And that's, Anyone who I experienced at Dana-Farber, my PCP is amazing. Um, so I think that towards the beginning there, it was happening quite a bit. It was like a cycle, like something would be bothering me. I would go and get checked out. They would do like an x-ray or something to kind of ease my mind. It would come back fine and I'd feel okay. And then something else would happen. So I think for a while, everybody on my care team was very open to doing what would help ease my mind, um, which I felt really supported, um, which I think is an important way to feel with your medical team. Um, and I think that as time has passed, I have also learned tools to kind of talk myself off like down and talk myself off the ledge, if that makes sense. Um, so that I don't feel like I need a scan every time I have an ache or pain. Um, and I can use today, I guess, as an example where, yes, I have been spiraling about the shoulder pain I've been feeling. I had, you know, very legitimate things to tie it to. I, like I said, I'm lifting weights. I definitely was pretty confident that I tweaked it doing some kind of Peloton exercise um, I also don't have the best posture. So like I had ways that I could kind of say, take a deep breath. There are, there are reasons that are explainable for this pain that are not cancer, but it still took me to go and see someone today who did not say, let's scan it. You know, this was the first time that they weren't quick to say that instead he was like, did his little thing and was like, this is this is classic blank, you know? So 
I, I think that a, a mixture from medical professionals of humanizing us, you know, like saying, because he, that's what he said today. He was like, I understand where you're coming from with your anxiety. Of course, I think anyone would go there. But based on my knowledge, this is classically this. This mm-hmm. is why I think this. So I think having that mixture of support, um, comfort, a little bit of comfort. I'm, I'm not asking to be hugged by all my doctors. I think like having just a smidge of, of that comforting tone even to your voice can really kind of set a, a patient's anxiety, um, can really like set them at ease a little bit. Um, and then using facts and, and proving that what you are saying really makes the most sense here and kind of almost painting that clear picture that, yes, I know you can't say a hundred percent, this is what this is, or a hundred percent, it's not that, but knowing that you're the expert and we are the former cancer patient with lots of anxiety kind of, um, has really helped me. So I think a combination of all those things. Those are great, great tips. And I think you're right. I mean, explaining why we're doing, why you have to be on a medication, why we're not getting a scan. I think that can be really, really powerful. Uh, do you have any, you know, I know some people go all out for their cancer, their five-year cancer anniversary. Um, any plans or is it more going to be, we're going to celebrate life day and life keeps on going. Yeah. I've been asked this question a lot, actually. And I think my family just asked me and I, they were like, so what do you want to do? Like, I would love to be like at the top of a mountain at 2.01 PM (laughs) on January 3rd, 2025, (laughs) but I don't know, or 2024. Sorry. Um, so no plans as of yet. I would love to be surrounded by family and friends. Doesn't have to be on that exact day, but just around it and really just kind of take a collective breath um, on what these past five years have been like and what life is going to continue to be like. Like you said, it doesn't just disappear. I'm still going to have appointments to go to. I'm still going to feel anxiety every time I have to get um, an MRI or a, a mammogram. And um, I think that those are the pieces that may get easier, but will never go away. Um, but again, just with a supportive care team, mm-hmm. I think that hopefully it will just continue to get easier. But yeah, as ter- in terms of like exact plans, I don't know yet. Maybe something big. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned. So last <laughs> Last question for you before we wrap up. Um, you know, I always one of the things I always tell my patients and is that I want you to look back on the five years or the 10 years, and I don't want you to live your life paralyzed by anxiety. You know, I don't want you to look back and say, Well, yes, I lived for these five or 10 years or whatever the time we're talking about, but I didn't enjoy it. And as someone who has thrived in the last five years, I mean, look at you know, you are you really completely found a new career. You're doing such amazing, amazing work. Um, any advice for really living and, and how to tamper down that anxiety when it comes? Cause it will come. I think if we mm-hmm. pretend it's not going to come, that's kind of foolish. It's going to show up. So how do you, how do you bypass that in order to really be able to look back and have that enjoyment? Mm. Oh, another really great question. And I have kind of two separate answers to this. Um, One of them is my infusion nurse. I was so lucky to have the same nurse for all of my infusions. And he, I I swear, is like an angel. I I will never forget that man. Um, He was like the perfect mix of like loving and sarcastic, would make me laugh, but like also really listen and be there. It was just, he was just unbelievable. Um, I will never forget this piece of advice that he gave me. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said, don't ruin the day. That was like his saying, don't ruin the day. And what he meant by that was when you're having very anxious thoughts about something huge, like my cancer is back, it's metastasized, or this pain is bothering me. Am I ever going to feel normal again? Um, 
there are so many life moments happening in front of your eyes. And I think he, he knew I had young kids and, um, Matt would come to my infusions. And I think he just kind of meant that nothing is going to change that day, regardless of the thoughts that you're having, try to see the beauty in each day, regardless of what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And whenever to this day, whenever I'm having a hard day, my husband will look at me and be like, don't ruin the day. And I'll be able to like take a deep breath and kind of get regrounded, almost recentered. Um, so I think mantras in general, if you have another one of mine was like faith over fear, like it's not going to help to go into this feeling scared. I just have to kind of take it day by day and have faith that whatever is going to happen is, is going to happen. And I just have to roll with it. Um, but in the day to day too, for me, I have found little things that have helped my anxiety, like moving my body every single day. That is now a, a must do. It is an absolute priority and it never was for me before. Um, so I think getting better at kind of putting myself first in that respect. And some mornings it means getting up at five o'clock and getting it in before long before my kids are awake. Um, so it's not always easy, but I know how much it helps me and my mental health. So finding whether that if you're listening and you're like, ah, I can never do that. Find the thing for you that is like a non-negotiable that helps you kind of get in that headspace. Another one, if I don't have time for anything is even taking like a few deep breaths of fresh air, which sounds crazy, but like, except maybe when it's like a hundred degrees outside, which it has been lately. (laughs) (laughs) That may not be, feel great, but, um, something about, and I feel like I used to feel that way in, in motherhood too. I still do. But like when your kids are really young and they're crying and like, you just need a second going out, something about fresh air. I don't know what it is, but Mm -hmm. it's like rejuvenating. Um, so that would be another thing. And other things like music, like fine or a good podcast, something that can like take your mind off of, um, if you're having anxious thoughts, calling a friend that you haven't talked to in a while, try to think of things that, um, can kind of momentarily take your mind off of what you're going through um, or what you're thinking about. And for me, writing was kind of something that really helped me journaling. Um, and it's something that we utilize a lot at Elephants in Tea. We actually teach healing through writing workshops. Um, and if you take the workshop, you get a free guided journal that we created from scratch. Um, and it's just full of prompts that kind of are either um, things you want to hold on to or things you want to let go of. So we kind of designed it like the tide coming in and coming out. So if you're having a really hard day and you have lots of thoughts and feelings that you just need to like shake out of you, you can flip to a page about letting go and kind of just write your thoughts down. Or if you're having a particularly great day and you want to hold on to those things, you know, there are prompts for that. So I think that writing, it can seem really intimidating Um, but if you're listening to this and you haven't tried it yet, um, try to keep an eye out for one of our upcoming writing workshops. Um, we'll have one coming up this fall. Um, and that could be a really cool tool. So there are a lot of, I feel like there are a lot of little things that you can add to your healing survivorship toolkit, if you will. And it takes some trial and error to find what works for you, um, but I think it's so important to be a little selfish and find those things and carve out a little, little moment of your day um, because it can really make a huge difference for, for your mental health, for your physical health. Um, So yeah, I've, I've found that that has been a huge help for me. I thank you for, for sharing that. I think that's such great advice before we wrap up. Is there anything we didn't touch on or any, where can, people find you elephants and tea spill the tea as they say yeah yeah Actually, so, first, tell me and I know the answer is but I love this story what how did elephants and tea get named oh yeah so the elephant in the room is cancer and tea is the relief that conversation provides 
So like I said, storytelling is really just kind of the basis of what we do. And um, it's all about sharing your story and feeling less alone. Um, so it the organization was was founded because our executive director's brother is actually a five-time cancer survivor of four different cancers at the age of 32. Um, it's incredible. He's just an incredible guy. And um, our organization is just um, based off of something that was created out of so much love and support and wanting that support for other people. Um, so yeah, his brother, Nick, the executive director has kind of built this um, organization from the ground up and really um, we're, we're touching a lot of lives and it feels weird to say that, but it's the impact. We're starting to really feel that impact that we're having and um, definitely check out our website. It's just elephantsnt.com. Um, and on there, you can see um, our program and events page. You can see any of our events that we have coming up. Like I said, we have a mixture of in-person and um, virtual and all with the mission to just make you feel less alone in what you're experiencing. So open to anybody. And um, I hope that you're able to check it out if you're listening and you're feeling like you need to know that that you're not the only one going through it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. Lisa is an incredible woman and hearing her story really touches on so many of the challenges and concerns that are faced in the AYA population. I talk about this all the time, but going through cancer treatment as an AYA adolescent and young adult is very different than going through it later in life. There are so many different challenges and hurdles to overcome and to and to deal with. And, and I'm, I really think that this episode touches on a lot of them. You can find Lisa and elephants and tea magazine on Instagram at elephants and tea magazine. And I hope that you do check their work out because it's truly incredible. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on all social media platforms and if you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I'm always honored if you can take a moment to share a rating and review over an Apple podcast as that helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you all for being here and I will see you soon. 